Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Welcome to Range of Strength Podcast. As always, I'm Lucas Aaron, and I have a very special guest here with me today, uh, Greg Lehman. Greg, how you doing? Good. You? Doing well. Good. Um, thank you for taking time to sit down with me and chat a little bit about movement and whatever else we get into. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. And I was just saying uh, before we hit record here, it was, uh, now it's been... Um, very good or you know uh eye-opening for me to find your account uh the last few weeks and uh just realize like i I, (laughs) it took me a while to find you like yeah where uh, you been (laughs) and then i find your account i'm like oh he's canadian too this is awesome um but uh i had made a post on my social media a few weeks back that went a little crazy like um, about spine flexion and uh sometimes i i don't know if you feel this way but uh, i get caught up in my social circles and and realize there's still a lot of people out there that don't you know realize that this is a possibility for our human movement and that it's something that we do and adapt to and um i reached out to dan van zant do you know dan flexibility research uh, I, I don't know him, but I think I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been doing some mentoring with Dan and we were talking a bit about it and he was like, you should reach out to Greg Lehman. And, uh, that was when I found your account and I started going through all your work and I was like, this guy's awesome. <laughs> doing great work, man. But, uh, yeah, before we dive into some of the discussion, um, we were talking about getting into today uh it would be really cool for myself too and and just uh meeting you and getting familiar with your work and and the the listeners as well to just hear a little bit more about your background and how you got into this field of work and um that sort of thing i always think is really cool to hear uh sure so i did an undergrad in kin kinesiology uh, in the 90s, and then I did a master's in spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo, uh, like primarily exercise biomechanics and spine manipulation. And I went to the chiropractic college and I researched there. And then I was, I'm in private practice. And then after being in private practice for a year, few years, I went uh, back to physio school. Uh, so I have like two designations to treat under. Um, and, you know, and so for 10 years, I was a researcher and clinician. And then for the past 10 years, I've just been a clinician. And for the past uh, six or seven, I've been teaching a, a course about biomechanics and pain and injuries where we talk, or we used to talk a lot about spine flexion and, and injury, because it's, uh, it's such a divisive uh, topic and there's lots of strong opinions yeah. on it, which always surprises me. <laughs> yeah for sure and your background i guess 
outside of education too, like you're, you're a very active individual. Um, I see like you're, you're skateboarding on your feed. Uh, you're doing the tumbling work. Like has that always played a big role in your, your life? Like being, you know, having that aspect of, uh, you know, like, it's funny when I was uh, younger, I did more like uh, less athletic things like golf and, you know, well, hockey, I don't know if hockey's athletic, but it's a lot of gear mm. and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and like running. And then I got really, for me, I got fit at running. I mean, relatively speaking, but I didn't feel very fit. So in the past four to five years, I made a shift away from uh, running to doing more gymnastics trampoline and then just the past year uh more skateboarding because i have like a frozen shoulder so it's really hard to do double backflips on the tramp you can't lift your arms over your head <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, it, so skateboarding your hands are mostly down unless you're flailing <laughs> no i love it i grew up on the, the concrete surf as well so and and getting into those activities obviously too like with your background in education it's like putting that lens on that I mean, those type of activities and even the ones prior to uh, golf and hockey you were doing when you were younger, it's like heavily involved with spinal flexion. Uh, yeah, for, for, for sure. You know, like that's, I'm not afraid of spinal flexion. I mean, 20 years ago, I was heavily influenced by the North American model where a neutral spine was king. And then, mm -hmm. you know, in the past, I'd say at least 10 years, I've, uh, really just revisited all the research with trying to be less biased. And I, I don't really hold that opinion uh, anymore. Yeah. And that's, sure. what's been uh, really nice about following your work too, is that you're not, I mean, this is something that I'm probably not the best at is, is always you know, bringing that information to light to the followers and stuff to say, like, let's look at the research. Let's look at what was done to you know make us all in this neutral spine craze and uh that's something that you do really well is like you, you bring together some of these factors and and deep dig a little deeper into um you know how this all kind of went a little crazy yeah it's it's a good like i mean i'm in my 40s so and i was really into the stuff in the 20s like i was into pain biomechanics and spine flexion so i was around when a lot of these papers came out and I read them, you know, in the hard cover journal. <laughs> so I've seen, seen a lot of these debates through the, through year, through the years. And what's interesting is 30 years ago, the spine flexion versus neutral spine debate was raging and it never got resolved, but it just did in the public eyes, in the eyes of the public. I mean, like it was, there was no new information. People just sort of accepted that neutral spine was the safest and, and it wasn't very strongly evidence-based. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, a, it was an opinion based on the evidence we had, but you could also look at the same literature and not make that conclusion, but people just accepted uh, that. And then when you go and look at the research, you're like, wow, how do we have such a strong belief in this area? And maybe we shouldn't. Let's <laughs> <laughs> start looking at the other side of it as well. Yeah, for sure. And like, I, I actually, I have no problem with people disagreeing with me. Like, I know I hold an opinion based on a way to view the literature mm -hmm. and someone might take a different opinion based on their way to view the literature. But we, so we should sort of respect 
people that disagree with us, like reasonable people can disagree, can look at the same thing and have different takes on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that from, I guess, my perspective, what I see, like, I guess through my lens, I come from a powerlifting background. Like I grew sure. up in that, in that sport and, you know, as much as there's a sore eye kind of, you know, to powerlifters sometimes for lifting heavy and, you know, bad form or whatever, it did teach me a lot as a strength coach, like segueing into that field and, you know, coming back to around where I, I now focus on flexibility. It's like, I appreciate more of those lessons I learned back then on the strength through flexion. Like my mentors and coaches back then taught us uh, flexion for strength. It's like, well, we're going to be working our deadlift and lock and weight out through flexion. So you, you need, they didn't really know, I guess the biomechanics of it, but it was like, yeah. we're going to, we're going to, we don't want to be arched. We want to be, you know, posteriorly tilted and getting the abs switched on. And we practice these things. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, it's, it, you know, like in the basements of, you know, whoever's house or whoever you're yeah. training yeah. for powerlifting competition, it's like these uh, practices are heavily put forth just because we're, we practice to be our strongest. It's like you're stronger, lock and weight out like this. It's like, so yeah. And uh, it was funny when I, you know, made that transition to start working in the industry, I was being taught not to do any of this. It's like, yeah. okay, safe back lifting, you know, we have to teach people to lift with neutral spine and a safe back. And there's that part of me that was like knowing how much stronger you are when you're not. So it was a little conflicting, but coming back to where I am now and then, um, you know, finding like individuals like you and making those connections to say like, yeah, there isn't much evidence to say that this is something we can, you know, completely forego and we shouldn't be thinking about doing and even more of the how I look at it now too is like a lot of this whole neutral spine heavily guarded extension work may be causing a lot of the issues that we're seeing when you see someone training this way and, and not actually applying I guess their strongest position you're like fighting against it yeah I, I would agree and that, that's that's an interesting take because you'll often hear people say who advocate like a less flexed or a neutral spine, that that's how really strong people lift. And then, and I don't have personal experience with that. I was a strength coach, but I didn't coach people deadlifting 600 pounds and things like that. Um, uh, but when I look at people lifting heavy, and we know this from the literature is you're not in neutral. You're, most people are at 70% of their max. Like they're, they're flexing a huge amount and it's just, so it's just odd that we see people lifting heavy loads or we see gymnastics or rowing or all these sports where flexion is not only is it safe, but it's a component of performance. So I just don't understand how we got on this anti-flexion just without even just looking at how people perform. Like, it's pretty amazing. Like you'd think that there's a study that, you know, looked at, 500 people who got injured and those who lifted with a more flex spine were more likely to get injured versus those who lifted with a less, less flex spine. That stuff doesn't exist, right? There's, it's not like, it's not, it doesn't exist in the weightlifting world. It doesn't exist in the occupational world where they follow people and see who gets injured. It's just, it's just not a risk factor. It's, it's based on, on one area of research that is actually quite questionable. 
right? Or a few areas where there's, there's a lot of conflicting research. And the, the big one, which like I, I knew about, but when I started following your work too, you brought to light as well as like the Callahan McGill. Callahan, yeah, Jack Callahan, yeah. Yeah, yeah that one um, on cadavers. Sure. So they would use an animal model, like a dead uh, uh, pig tissue. Uh, other researchers, and lots of people have used this model through the years, or they would use uh, cow spines, or they use like lamb spine as well, just depending where you were in the world. And, and essentially what Jack's study just showed was like repeated, very low, low load um, flexion, where you've just moved the spine, one motion segment back, I'm mo you're moving the hands, so no one can see me. You're moving it back and forth a tiny amount, not even full range flexion. And they're able to create a disc herniation in this, this model, this cadaver model. So the argument there was, you know, you don't get these disc herniations unless there's flexion occurring. So that, that's sort of the most famous paper. But the, the issue is like you, other studies have supported that, but other studies will also show like there's a researcher, their last name is Wade where, or Varus, where there were disc herniations when the spine wasn't neutral as well. So, or you could say, well, they, the amount of motion in that, in that motion segment, the amount that they moved it, wasn't something that you can actually avoid in life, mm -hmm. right? It, it might've been between 35 and 60% of max flexion. Well, when people lift heavy or they just function and lit, live, they, all, they regularly move more than 60% of max flexion. Yeah. So, so it's really a risk. It's a shitty risk factor yeah. <laughs> because you can't <laughs> avoid it. Yeah. How are you going to live? You... Hey, that's why I wrote a follow-up blog. Like maybe everyone's right. We're just all doomed. We're doomed to fail. <laughs> yeah. And, and the fact that it's dead tissue. Sure. So yeah. yeah, that whole thought process of tissue adaptation and you know, things getting stronger in that manner over time, it's not applicable at all. Yeah, the idea then, so, so Jack would have done that in like 1999, would have got, or even actually did it before that. We just didn't think that the tissue was adapting that much then. Right. Right. So, I, I mean, you, you'd find this like, I always say like, if you took a tendon, a dead tendon out of the body and you pulled on it 5,000 times for 250 milliseconds at four times body weight, it would also break down. Mm -hmm. But what I just recreated there was someone running 10 K and no one would say, Oh, don't run 10 K. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we know like the, these tissues, they can adapt. They take uh, time to adapt. So the, I think the debate would be like, uh, how adaptable are they? Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm just not sure that what we do in those cadaver studies, because even in Jack's study, they bent, they would bend it back and forth thousands of times, like right. up to 86,000 times. Other studies would do 10,000 times. That would be the low end. And like, we're just not really doing that. Like mm -hmm. it may not be physiological, physiologically relevant. Yeah. Like how many, how many times do you lift heavy deadlifting? Like when you train the most, how many deadlifts at like more than 80% of your yeah. max load do you think you would do in a week? Well, smart lifters are, are lifting, deadlifting once or twice a week. Yeah. How many yeah. sets? Like five to eight. Okay. Ten. And how many, yeah. like, and if you're lifting 80%, you're maybe doing three to five, you know, you're never. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. the deadlift too was always practiced. Like we followed 
we followed a lot of West side barbell principles and the deadlift was always practiced at a one to three rep range because you're, yeah. you're power lifting. So you only really need to be really good at that. Not necessarily doing it 10 times again, because yeah. it was also one of the thought process. Like we're trained to be strong. We're not training to lift a car 20 times or whatever, even though, you know, strong men do that strong men competitions are a little more focused in that endurance side, which is yeah. again, at a, adaptable over time. They don't just show up and do that. <laughs> right. Um, no. Yeah. That's so what, you know what I mean? Maybe 30, like not even at the most 30 heavy reps a week. That's nothing. And so even when you look at the cadaver models, what they found was like, you weren't getting disc herniations with the heavy, heavy loads inflection. You would get vertebral fractures, but everyone's worried about the disc with flexion. That's what's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So like, you're only getting like the, these, these disc herniations with low loads and thousands and thousands of flexion cycles. Yeah. So you can question that whole, whole model if you wanted to. And a lot, I, I, you're seeing a lot of the squat and, and stoop research is kind of like started to become the focal point of like flexion as well too. And that's more or less showing in a lot of times that the stoop lift is more efficient, which is debatable, I guess, as well too. But it's, an, it's a more efficient process of movement for the yeah, human you're, body. You're probably thinking of the Mostyn paper that just came out. Maybe, I don't know that there <laughs> doesn't matter. So that's like a really old finding, like that's like more than 30 years old. So if you're defining efficiency as like metabolic cost. And so we know that like, if you're working in the fields and like, you know, planting tobacco or picking something up a thousand times a day, no one's going to squat. So no. without a doubt, it's physiologically uh, more efficient. Now the debate in like the powerlifting world is like, where do you produce the most force? Right. Right. And, uh, and I would, I would guess it's like at an individual level, you know, there's going to be people who really like to have like 90% max flexion and someone else might feel comfortable with 70 or 60%. Do you know what I mean? Like guys that you trained with or women you trained with, you'd probably see a lot of variety. Yeah, for sure. And And a good coach figures that out. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the goal is always to manipulate the body closest to the bar. Right. The further you are away from the arm, you're, you're weaker. <laughs> so, you know, you're moving the body always in this position where we're, we're closer to produce more strength and it's super unavoidable to, yeah. to not find yourself in flexion. And so what's cool here is when, when I talk, people often will misrepresent what I say saying, oh, biomechanics don't matter. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, we're, we shouldn't just be focused on spine flexion. That's, mm-hmm. That's just a, an end, like a, a side effect. Yeah. You, the biomechanics matter. You're trying to get into the best position for you to produce force. And that might be lots of spine flexion. It might be less spine flexion. It's probably something else, yeah. right? That's just a side effect. You don't really think, oh, I got to minimize spine flexion to produce the most force. That's not the right way to think. Yeah. And there's a, a bit of a snowball effect there too. Like, you know, everyone's thinking about like the way they sit now this is bad for my back <laughs> right yeah. and then, i mean you know the body's always trying to find rest you know in certain ways when we're not going and doing things but there's that snowball effect now it's like now everyone's you know buying the things you put on for posture and walking around like this and we can't have any flexion at all so um, 
<laughs> it is because it's unavoidable like you know and it's what i've kind of been thinking more so is that a lot of the issues that and i guess working with people now like you're seeing people i, I do more online work now than i i used to do but a lot of it is kind of getting them back into flexion because they're so bound up in extension and almost like they're overextending all the time and forcing it that they've lost the ability to even articulate flexion. So it's like, yeah. even, you know, just knowing how to segment your spine and actually move it and roll it into flexion is just like a, a, a lost movement. Yeah. I, I, I could see that. I just, the, the thing with sitting posture, again, it's one of those things that doesn't have a lot of evidence. We have studied that. Well, it's mm-hmm. just not that well, like how you sit is not well related to pain right? It's just, it's nothing. The loads are so low, you know, who cares? It's probably more important that you just do something else besides sit. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But no your... one would, could you imagine choosing to sit upright all day long? How tiring that would be? Well, I, you know, I mean, I've tried that, you know, like when I got into, you know, working in the field and stuff, and that was very much directed at like, this is what we need to do. It's like, all of a sudden yeah. I found myself sitting all the time, correct in my posture and it's okay this is the most uncomfortable thing i've ever done um, yeah it's apparently I mean, do you it's gonna... w- do you cross your legs when you sit i do yeah yeah so what does that do that naturally puts your spine into a bit of flexion as soon as your hip is flexed it starts to your spine starts to flex and then there's less stress on the spine this yeah. is the thing we have all these ideas like we have to be feet stacked and everything upright and yeah you, you'll naturally find these postures that feel good yeah and from an athletic standpoint, if we don't learn how to practice this now, rather than just our sport, are we taking away from force production? You mean like if, I don't know. Yeah, I think you mean like if you don't do it while you're sitting the six no, hours No, just like day? in your oh. training. Like, so now oh, if your training okay. becomes yeah. very focused on um, minimizing flexion, and only really practicing it, I guess, within your sport itself. Like, what are we doing to these athletes now by saying like everything extension, neutral spine, you know, are yeah. we kind of holding them back in that sense where it's only limited to the practice of the sport without even really knowing it? No, I, I, I would agree. I mean, like with my gymnastics training, I did, it actually, it was, I was tearing my abs when I started doing back flips again, back tucks again, uh, like they were literally tearing <laughs> And so uh, my fancy rehab was to do sit-ups, you know, and straight leg raises, because that's what you do in a backflip, like is as simple as that. Yeah. I couldn't just do the backflip. So I still do sit-ups. Like we vilified the sit-up, which is just ridiculous because it's that assumption that the uh, spine or the abs are all anti-movement. I have no idea where, (laughs) where that came from. Because just look at athletic events. Like we move, like the golf swing is a crunch. (laughs) Yeah. It's at least 50% spine flexion. I have a case study from 1999 on that. Like you crunch during the swing. It is a sit up or a crunch. (laughs) Yeah. The uh, anti-rotation, anti-flexion craze, which is still there. Oh, yeah. Again, I, I was saying to you at the start here, I kind of get lost in my own social circle sometimes. And I realize like when people are still doing this, like 
hardcore anti-rotation training and you can't avoid it. We can't avoid rotation. And we're saying, okay, if we train in anti-rotation manner, anti-flexion, we will be better when we go out and actually do that. It's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, Yeah. If you have a rotation-based sport. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I used to rock climb a lot again with the shoulder less so. And so there's components of that where you do want to be stiff and braced and you do want to just be tight the whole way through and same with some gymnastic stuff. So, you know, my advanced training is, Oh, let's do both. (laughs) Like (laughs) it all, like that's like, we just have to simplify. What do you have to do? Okay. Let's prepare you to do that. I don't see why that's such a, why, why we can't just say, okay, that's a good way to practice. Why we have to make it so much harder than, than it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, it's the glutes, right? It's the weak glutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they have to be activated because somehow oh, they're special. That was uh, another, some good segments that you were producing too. I was going through as well as talking about the whole glute inhibition um, kind of thing, which is, you know, very relatable to spine flexion as well. Um, but you've done a lot of work on that sense too, to bring that forward to say like, there's no validated tests to really say like, your glutes aren't working. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, in 1998, that's how old I am and how I've been this drum. <laughs> I put my first like social media post out on that to a, a biomechanical list server. Cause Craig Liebenson sent Stu McGill a textbook and it had a Yanda chapter about the glute shutting off and the hips flexors causing that. And I was like, this is bullshit. And I remember writing to all the biomechanists at the time, does this make any sense? Cause it made no sense to me. So that's 23 years ago. It's on my Instagram because I found, you can still, if you Google me and Biomech L and hips or something, mm-hmm. it pops up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been saying the same thing forever. Yeah, and it was, uh, you produced a research paper you were saying on your wife. Oh yeah. She so was it, your wife at the time, but she, yeah, yeah. she got an injury and you did some research on her injury and related to that kind of uh, when the glutes turned on. So in yeah. the two thousands, people were saying you could, if someone lifted up their leg lying on their stomach, you could look at the glutes and see when the muscle turned on. And the thought was it's dysfunctional if the glutes were last. Mm-hmm. And we published a paper showing the glutes are last in everyone. It's normal. That's been repeated in like five papers since that time. And then my wife was in that as a normal, and then she hurt her ankle. So I studied her for eight weeks <laughs> and, uh, and like, because the idea was a distal dysfunction will cause proximal dysfunction and like nothing changed with the glutes. Right. And it's it just, consi- all those theories of the lower prost syndrome have been like, certainly not supported. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some respects, quite debunked, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, even the idea that the glutes become inhibited, there's probably more evidence that there's more a muscle activity in the glutes um, when people have low back pain or hip pain right. than less. So yeah, it's like looking at the hips more so what's happening around like those kind of areas versus attacking the glutes and extension. It's just, uh, well, there's that. It's just that there's, there's nothing inherently like prone to inhibition right. about the glutes. It's yeah. just not... It, it, any EMG isn't very good for this anyway. You know, it's just not worth like taking a muscle and worrying about it more than others. I mean, the, the advice to strength train your hips is fine. That, that will help people with knee pain and low back pain. 
but there's nothing special about the glutes. You can, with knee pain, you can also strength train your adductors and it will help people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Training in general. A lot of those people. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of looking around, I guess in a lot of scenarios, like looking, I've kind of found that looking around the pain, like low back, for example, it's like, okay, well, how are the hips functioning? How are the quads functioning? You know, are you just have a really strong lower back and that's why your lower back's hurting versus a lot of times the prescription is to kind of attack the pain. Oh, we need to strengthen your low back. We need to strengthen your knee. And it's like, well, is that the issue or is it just taking a lot of slams because the hip or the ankle or whatnot? Sure. And that, that's sort of the theory on stress shifting. This is this idea that sometimes we're at, we accidentally endurance cope, meaning we accidentally, accidentally keep doing the thing that aggravates us. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of treatment sometimes is just teaching someone to move differently yeah. so that it feels better. And then they can go back to doing whatever they want. Yeah. So like if you teach someone to use their hips more instead of their back, they'll be like, oh, it feels better. It doesn't mean one is more ideal. It was just the right for them at that point in time. Whereas like when I deadlift, I feel much better when I use my back more, you know, it just, it just, it just works for me. Like, it just depends what's sore. (laughs) You just want options and how you can move. Yeah, exactly. Movement options. That's, that's, uh, that's been my thing with the flexibility work is like, if, if you can increase your flexibility and work your flexibility more, you have options. Yeah. And then you gotta, you gotta, most research says you have to incorporate it. Like just being, having access to it doesn't mean you'll use it. Yeah. yeah. And there's some, if people want research, Jones Scannell with uh, Stu McGill, they have a nice paper on that. They did that with the hips. Can't nice. just, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You do um, a lot of work on pain management, which is, is also, I got to get a little more into like, how you're helping people cope and manage with that because I, I like the thought process of like actually poking the pain, like what you say, like getting back into, you know, actually doing the thing. Yeah. That you Not, love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you like, I guess, just talk a little bit more about that process and, and how you. So, so basically like, if I'm working with someone who's trying to get to the Olympics or I'm working with someone who has like severe pain related, you know, disability, there's no difference in the principles. Mm -hmm. It's the the same questions. And we're, we're thinking the same things. Like you're just fundamentally pain is multidimensional, right? The body's involved and then the nervous system involved and everything in your life is kind of involved. So you're just trying to figure out what's causing this person to be sensitive And then you kind of wonder, like, uh, can we change things? You know, Mm -hmm. if there's a driver of sensitivity, can we decrease it? Or is it more about, like, do we add things to your life to make you less sensitive? And that's that's the idea of, like, resuming the activities you love, right? Sometimes when we're in pain, we just keep pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. And people, you'll see this a bit in the physio world, certainly in the corrective exercise world where someone stops doing the exercises they love and they just spend an hour doing corrective exercises and all these things as if they have to fix themselves before they start doing the thing that they really want to do. Right. And my, my whole thing is like, sometimes the thing that you're missing, the thing that you've been avoiding, that's maybe the thing that you have to start doing yeah. and that you can actually get comfortable doing it again. 
And so there's value in just poking into pain sometimes, especially yeah. if you don't flare up. And then doing that can actually help your pain. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit odd, but we consistently see it in a number of studies where it's not inherently the worst thing ever to push a bit into discomfort. Yeah. Unless you're like an endurance coper, which some people are, they just always keep hammering into discomfort and they actually need to pull back. But there's a massive sub subset of people who just feel like they're ruined and they're wrecked and they just will stop doing the things that they love because they're waiting for someone to fix them yeah. or something about them to be fixed. Yeah. The like, corrective uh, exercise. Yeah. Kind of obsession. Yeah. And so that's like my slogan, like the doing is the fixing. Yeah. Which is odd. Like you got to start doing the stuff that you love again. Well, I, you see that a lot in, you know, the powerlifting world. Like I experienced that too. At uh, one stage I got injured and I stepped away from the sport and was like, I got, I will never do that again. I'm doing it again. Like, you know, that was a while ago, but you know, I, I had spent that time doing the corrective stuff and I got to fix myself. And it was like, part of that really weighed in on my mental health too. And I think that's kind of one of the pieces there as well is like, you know, you coming back to it, poking the pain a little bit and returning to that activity is about knowing how to do that as well. Cause you, you kind of, a lot of people feel lost in like, well, I was doing it like this before, but the regression and exercise or whatever is like, you know, something that they get kind of lost in is like, I was doing this, using this much weight or I was doing it this certain way. So yeah. it's a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. Counseling process, but doing the thing just that in a different way is, is the path. And that's, it's certainly how I found my path was like coming back to these things that I was like, I can't do these things anymore. It's like, I came back to them and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's funny. Sometimes that, that is the right approach. I don't think it's the corrective exercise that helps. It's just the fact that you take time off. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're just hammering to pain and we do need to back off. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what you see. And there's actually a lot of people who argue like say with knee pain and runners, like why do hip exercises help? And the argument is, well, you're just doing something else and not using your knee for a little while. <laughs> That's what's yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> like you could start juggling. Okay. And then your knee will get better because you're not using your knee as much. And you're not going to say it's because you got better at juggling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just like distracted you while shit calmed down. And then you slowly start running or deadlifting again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's the thought process. Well, it's kind of this vicious circle for some people is like the next thing. I'm going, to, I'm going to try this now because it hurts. I'm going to do this. And I, you do see that with the intense training side of things. It's like the physical activity kind of gets lesser and lesser, like on the physical side, <laughs> you become a yogi and yeah. or whatnot, and then maybe forget about those things. But no, it's a cool concept. Um, so a little bit more about the, the work you're doing now in terms of a, as an educator, um, so is that more of a focus with coaches, like helping coaches or therapists or other people like, or is it more general? Uh, so the, the course I do is, uh, it's everyone. It's definitely strength coaches. I, I go, actually, I do see some yoga practitioners, teachers, uh, a lot of physios, a lot of chiros, you know, it just depends where in the world, but yeah, it, it's primarily for that. I do. And then online, what I'm doing with YouTube is, 
the things that I say to my patients all the time for the past 15 years, I'm just kind of recording those and putting them into videos so that I don't know, I'm just sharing it for other people. Yeah. And it's funny because then now it's like the, the patients that I see, they already kind of know who I am, mm-hmm. <laughs> which kind of helps. And so like, I think sometimes we're a few sessions in because they've seen all my propaganda. <laughs> you know? No, that's good. Yeah, your clients can kind of create your content. Well, yeah. well, there's that. And then this is odd. Like some of the messages that we put out there, which aren't new, but they're new to other people. Um, it's easier, like it's hard for a coach or a therapist to broach these topics sometimes. Yeah. And so if someone else does it, like me, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, they, like the, the, the therapist can send their patients or clients to see my videos or my book, and then they get to talk to them about it. It's just yeah. easier. It's, it's all, it's just a better sales pitch when someone else says this stuff. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. It's, uh, it's cool to find someone like you for myself who practices a lot of these things. And it's, you know, you want like as many people on, you don't want to say there's sides. There's not even really sides. Yeah. It's just different viewpoints and making sure that people don't get so obsessive, especially when it comes to, I'd like the term movement more than exercise because it's, all encompassing happening all the time. And so you got to have that outlook, like, you know, what's safe and what's not safe and what's a safe practice. And how should I think about these things and not necessarily just kind of go crazy without kind of analyzing, you know, the evidence behind a lot of these things that people go a little crazy about like stretching is bad for you. It's like, why is stretching bad for you? (laughs) Why? Like, why why did that become a thing? Cause there was like, because people misinterpreted the research yeah yeah jumped on it and it's almost like a you know i don't know if it's too harsh for a word but like a fear-mongering kind of approach to be like this so i i was an anti-stretchite you know 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and it actually started because of the end of stuff i hated the idea that people like people thought if you would stretch a tissue it'd make it less stiff and then it would change posture like I, and so I went for, I found research that said, no, that makes no sense. And then, and I didn't like to stretch. And then, so I just looked for any research, you know, and I wanted, I think sometimes you also want to like make yourself seem like you're special. Like you have this special knowledge that other people don't have. Right. And that's what happened in the stretching world because everyone said you have to stretch to prevent injuries, you know, and there's sure there's not a lot of research on that, but it's not like there's a lot of research. There's no research showing like it's worse for you that it's mm-hmm. detrimental in the long term. And then surprisingly, like if you actually look at the stretching literature, it just hasn't been that well studied when it comes to injuries. That's what's amazing. People just promote these ideas that it's a myth. They like to think they're all busting myths, especially in the running world. Mm-hmm. Like it just hasn't been well studied. That's the yeah. thing. And there's a few studies where stretching before sprinting or any like explosive activity like that might actually be protective. But no one mm-hmm. mentioned those. They don't mention those papers. They just mention the ones that confirm, you know, their bias. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's more like uh, you, they lost a millisecond of their speed or some kind of, you know, slower time. So even that, do you know that the work of uh, Blazevich and Bem and McHugh and these people? Bem, uh, yeah. Yeah. So they, they, uh, well, David, I mean, he's Canadian. You must know him. We all know yeah. each other. Uh like as their work just said, it was like you had to hold the stretch for longer than 60 seconds. Right. 
And then the testing had to be in like a very simple like activity, like a vertical jump or something like that, or a sprint, a 40 meter sprint. And then you might see a tiny decrease. But a lot of people argued, as soon as you do a little warm up, that's gone. That negative effect is, is gone. And it's probably gone if you're in a sporting environment as well. So like we just overemphasize these things and people would try to translate it to like endurance sports or like we did a study, we tried to stretch the hell out of people's backs doing two minute holds and I had them swing a golf club and we measured their spine kinematics. I wanted to see if their spine rotational velocity slowed down. Mm -hmm. And I went out of my way to stretch the hell out of them to make it easier to publish because I really wanted it to slow down, right? <laughs> and it didn't, <laughs> like there is no change. And so like really, I think really complicated motions, uh, you won't see these detriments. And I don't even think these detriments even really exist right. anyway. So yeah, people just took a little bit of research and just ran with it way too far. Yeah, we got something. <laughs> yeah. Are you That's stretching? On stretching. Yeah, are you stretching now? Is that because- No, <laughs> I don't stretch, I don't care. Cause I, I did uh, when I was doing more gymnastics. Yeah. So, I would stretch for that because I wanted I wanted it for my back handspring. Yeah. Um, but not no, don't I didn't, don't need it for anything. So like uh yeah, but if I, <laughs> I I I mean I yeah, it's just gymnastics. But now that I'm not doing gymnastics, you know, I don't care about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll defend stretching. It's just not the best use of my time. <laughs> I don't really like it. I find it like hard. It is hard. It's a workout. Yeah, it's yeah. the hardest thing. Uh, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I've, I feel like I've done some pretty hard things with the powerlifting sport, but when I got into stretching, I was like, man, this is... Yeah, it's not comfortable. <laughs> Why would I do that? I go on my skateboard. Well, yeah, like my thought process, I guess along the way, it was always like, well, putting whatever much weight on my back is not comfortable. Why can't I just sit here and like be in this stretch if I could do that? that was you know it's definitely been a journey for sure and um no it's it's uh cool to connect with you and and hear those you know uh ideas just like a little more clearly and um yeah like knowing that spine flexion is okay i think that's an, a very important message for people you know obviously not to the extreme that you're gonna go do something max effort on a, in a spine flexural lit uh, spine flexion lift like right away or like you wouldn't yeah. do that with anything exactly you know so it's not to promote like you know max lift spine flexion but to promote that this is a way of movement that we should understand learn how to adapt to and not avoid um and and knowing that yeah it's kind of been a bit skewed as to how that's being presented i think oh yeah way too strong opinions <laughs> yeah. that's for sure yeah awesome well um yeah that's that's it for me man i just i wanted to Perfect. have a focused conversation there with you around some of those things that i'm getting into and i'm looking forward to digging more into your stuff from here and uh yeah i really appreciate you taking the time to uh sit down and talk with me and listeners can find you on your YouTube is it's movement optimism. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think that's it or Greg Lehman. Like, I, yeah. Yeah. They'll both pop up. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Greg. I look forward to connecting with you more. Okay. Thank you. Bye everyone.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.